Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. From wars to censorship to cultural issues, you're with Mark Morano and Unleashed on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And good day and welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. And yes, I'm cosplaying in this outfit because we're having Throwback Thursday here. We're going to go back to 1993 just for the brief opening here. I wanted to have some fun. I got more Rush Limbaugh clips of our man in Washington. And this was my outfit that I wore. It's actually the exact same hat and exact same jacket from 31 years ago uh, today. And I, I happened to find them in my closet. I thought I'd wear it. Have a little fun with this. Uh, and then we're going to have... Um, we're going to go into a story on EVs and my appearance on Fox News. And then we're going to have Dan Mitchell, an economist, come on later today. And we're going to go through all sorts of China, uh, big tech, and all kinds of economic issues that face the world today. So we'll have economist Dan Mitchell on in a little bit. But first, uh, in from 1992 to 1996, Rush Limbaugh had a nationally syndicated television show. I've shown you a few of these clips in the past. I thought I would have a little fun and show you uh, one more clip here. I, there's, there's. I, at one point, I was on a weekly retainer. I don't know how many segments I ended up doing. It's probably hundreds in the end. Uh, and they were mostly uh, shorter segments, all the DC political scene. So let's go ahead and roll. Let's go back to May of 1993. This is Rush Limbaugh introducing me as our man in Washington, as he said it. So roll clip uh, four. We have some footage from our man in Washington in D.C. for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Some great interviews that we'll show you tonight. That was his introduction, and he, had, he would always feature the hat trench coat. I did everything from climbing in the rafters to uh, to coming in through phone booths like Clark Kent to Superman. And the idea was that I would go undercover because if these events, typically liberal Democrat events, if they knew where I was, they would kick me out. And it was actually true. I was outed and I was never even in. Uh, at one point at the National Press Club, there was a White House photographer who was very upset that I was asking a lot of the you know, po political figures. And he told him, I interviewed John Ritter, the actor. And John Ritter uh, then came over to me and said, hey, you're with Limbaugh's TV show. I got something for Limbaugh. And he challenged Rush to come on his then TV show, Hearts of Fire. This is the late John Ritter, the actor from Three's Company. And Rush Limbaugh aired that on TV, and Rush Limbaugh ended up going out to L.A. and shooting a couple episodes of Hearts of Fire, playing himself on the show. And by all accounts, uh, it went very well for Rush, and I think John Ritter was very happy, all because I was, you know, covering up it, it, undercover. And of course, it's hard to go undercover in a hat and trench coat. Anyway, here's the segment, uh, May 1993. This is the either the Congressional Correspondents' Center or the White House Correspondents' Center, clip five. All right, let's go down to Washington. The White House Correspondents' Dinner Saturday night. Our man in Washington, ever faithful, on the scene to get video of some high-ranking guests. There's the official Washington Hilton Hotel is where it's held. You'll see our man in Washington sneaking in here in just a moment. There he is. Uh, 
our government has a lot to learn from Rush Limbaugh. Uh, is Rush Limbaugh making a difference in educating the public? Rush Limbaugh has a lot to learn, no question about that. Uh, I think uh, he certainly plays a, an important role. I think anytime you have a dialogue uh, with people with different views, it's, uh, it's good uh, uh, for the country. A lot of people listen, I'm sure. Now, what they take away from it, I can't say. But listen, he's out there, he's talking to them, and that's how you, uh, that's how you influence people. Have you taken anything away from anything Rush Limbaugh said? I enjoy him. Rush Limbaugh is the greatest hey, thinker is. in America today. The greatest thinker in our party, their party, anybody's party, because he is not a politician. He's a commonsensical thinking American. Rush? Yeah. Rush doesn't like me that much. <laughs> I don't think there's anybody uh, like Rush. Uh, I have run into people all across America who have changed their minds because of what he has told them. I agree with 92.6% of uh, what he says. It's like this dinner down here. It's uh, good for those of us who suffer from outside the Beltway Syndrome to get down here and see real life. Is Rush Limbaugh making a difference educating the American people? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Uh, no, no, no question about it. And I think, uh, I think everybody who's honest will have to admit that. No question. I didn't know that. I didn't know that guy was from our show. They set me up. I thought I was being interviewed for another show. There. I'm on my own show. And that was Rush having fun. I, I, I had to interview him at that dinner. He also had Eleanor Clift come up to him from the McLaughlin group, and they clowned around. There's a clip of that as well on the same show. Anyway, I just thought I'd have some fun, open up today's show with uh, some silliness. And I have a treasure trove. And as time goes on and as news events occur, I think I'll release some and have some, some of these old clips from Rush Limbaugh, the television show in the 1990s to certainly honor Rush and to have some fun and show some of my uh, original career starting back in the 1990s. Uh, and I was actually started that, um, I was in my 20s, so uh, I guess early, mid-20s, something like that. Anyway, so I wanted to start with that. Okay, now, the next thing here, and this is, uh, we'll go fast, we're going to be joined by economist Dan Mitchell after the break. I was on Stuart Varney on Fox Business um, Channel, and Stuart Varney if you recall, I may have mentioned this, uh, I certainly did on my weekly show, was he's a, he's part of the Wall Street um, yeah, reporting and news effort. And Wall Street has been somewhat hesitant initially to go after climate science and green energy to some extent, because a lot of them make money, so they don't want to. And, and it's interesting to see because Stuart Varney, I used to be a regular on his show, like once a week, I'm talking 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And you could actually see Wall Street shift. I think I mentioned this on, my, on TNT before, but even with Neil Cavuto, the same thing, Fox Business, anyone that does the market reporting, they sort of follow the the movement of Wall Street ideology. And initially, uh, particularly when President Obama did his original green stimulus and he was elected, there was a lot of pushback. Later on, I think Wall Street decided they could make a lot of money off green energy. And oh, sure, they could because it's massive federal subsidies and mandates to juice it along. And so anyway, uh, but I think it's amazing to see now because Stuart Varney is just all against net zero, open to all the scientific challenges. And uh, he's really, uh, he's uh, it's an enjoyable show to do. This is me on Stuart Varney talking uh, about, uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, electric vehicles. And also I was talking 
about uh, these training activist judges. But first, we're going to talk about electric vehicles. This is clip one, me on Stuart Varney on Fox News. Mark Morano is with us. Now, Mark is the publisher of The Climate Depot, and he's not big on global warming. But Mark, uh, welcome to the show. Would you say that Biden's EV push is a bust, or is that going too far? No, it's an absolute bust, but it's a dangerous bust because the more these plans tend to fail, the more they tend to double down on the failure. So let's hope that Jeff has a much better time than his transportation uh, secretary, Pete Buttigieg, or his energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm. In the case of Energy Granholm, when she tried to drive cross country in her EV, she had NPR along for the PR value, and they ended up blocking the only free charger spot with a family with a baby during a heat wave in August. And NPR even reported on this critically. So. Almost $8 billion the Biden administration's authorized for this EV charging stations. And they haven't even, they, they originally said they hadn't built any. There may have been one built. I think they scrounged around and found one. This was according to Politico. Here's the bottom line. When you have a situation where a government is mandating you can only drive one car, and make no mistake, that's not only happening with government, it's happening with corporations. You have Australian banks. We're not going to give out car loans to people who buy car loans. This is akin to the East German government saying you can only buy the crappy East German Trabant two-cylinder and you can wait 8, 10, 12 years for it. They're forcing a situation on the American people that we didn't vote for and that we don't want. And we know we don't want it because all you got to do is look at the EV sales. All you got to do is look at all the automakers coming out saying they're sitting on our lot. We don't want to be part of this anymore. The Buick dealers opting out. Good luck to Jeff as he drives across country, but we'll, follow. Uh, we'll see how it turns out for him. And the Jeff reference was a Fox News reporter is going to be driving cross country in an EV to test the national charging grid and to see how convenient, inconvenient, how long it takes to find charging stations, how long it takes to recharge, what kind of range he has, uh, and whether he runs into cold weather and if that limits the battery. So, so Fox is doing that. That's what I was referring to when I was saying Jeff over and over. What's interesting about this whole uh, EV push is it's literally collapsing mainstream now. They can't hold it together. They can't even hold the narrative. In fact, Business Insider has an article, What Happened to EVs? The sudden slowdown as electric cars is a symptom of a much uglier problem. So this isn't just you know conservatives or right-wingers or climate deniers pushing back on EVs. Electric vehicles were supposed to be inevitable, says Business Insider. Two years ago, Joe Biden climbed behind the wheel of a beefy Hummer to tout his plan that half of new cars and sold by 2030 would be electric. The following year, Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which created a bevy of incentives for driver. That set off a flurry of new projects. What I do find funny about people steeped in government and, and tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars and into the trillions with this with these projects and green stimulus. They always brag when the money spigot is open, especially in the early days. Look at this. It's so profitable. Look at all these companies. It's working. Like, oh, there's an EV startup and there's a solar startup and there's a wind. Oh, my gosh. It's where we told you. I'm sorry. You made a bunch of government make believe make work jobs with taxpayer money. Doesn't prove squat. People aren't buying the cars and solar and wind aren't providing the energy. But yeah, they're providing jobs because it's taxpayer money going to these startup companies and Democrat donor links, Al Gore uh, recommendations. 
everyone's profiting handsomely. Everyone's happy. Wall Street investors are happy. The banks are happy, except the taxpayers and except the electrical grid and electrical grid and people who rely on reliable energy. So Business Insider goes on this 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 pumping the money to the EV projects. Set up a flurry of new projects, EV plants, battery manufacturing facilities, mining operations. By the end of 2022, the situation looked promising. Look at that. We just threw hundreds of billions of dollars at a sector, and it looks to be booming and profiting. What could go wrong? More and more Americans were going electric. The problem is the transition to the EV seemed like a slam dunk. This is Business Insider. It would not only give the government a highly visible way to fighting climate, but boost it. Sure, sales of EVs keep going up. The electric vehicle takeover, though, has hit some serious roadblocks. Now, remember, this is the mainstream corporate media. They're letting everyone down gently. So they're not going to tell it completely like it is, but this is a pretty remarkable article. The pace of adoption has marked has markedly slowed, and analysts are suggesting the country is no longer on track to hit the government sales targets. Wah, wah, wah. So Business Insider says we can't hit the targets anymore. Remember Joe Biden, the big PR, everyone was flushed, hundreds of billions of dollars cash flying out. And now they're saying they're not going to make it. Oh, imagine that, a government five, 10-year, 15-year plan, and the targets are missed. I, I, I bet Joe Stalin had better success with his five-year plans. Okay. Business Insider again on EVs. The trickle-down effects of the decreased demand for EVs are everywhere. EVs are accumulating at dealerships. This fall, even as automakers cut prices to try to entice customers. By the way, that's the other thing. Massive subsidies, at least $7,500 plus for every EV bought is subsidized and reduced by the government, plus all the incentives, plus you know, the fleet sales, plus um, people get HOV perks. And if you get an electric vehicle and you get all sorts of uh, subsidies, and they still can't make it work. Let's continue. Automakers have backtracked on their promised investments. Ford delayed $12 billion on its planned $15 billion investment in EV manufacturing capacity. General Motors delayed the production of key EV models um, and scrapped a $5 billion partnership with Honda to make EVs cheaper. Even Tesla, once the superstar of EVs, announced it would delay a planned factory in Mexico. Auto execs who were once trumpeting the potential of electric cars are even publicly are acknowledging that EVs aren't working. I mean, this is incredible. And here's the other thing. They just mentioned Tesla, a separate article, and this is from Fox Business. Chinese company poised to overtake Tesla as biggest electric vehicle maker on path to global leadership. That's just scratching the surface. The EU is considering tariffs on China. China is passing the US, South Korea for auto production. China is set to take over the global auto production if we were all to mandate EV only cars, like the old East German, like I mentioned in, on Varney's Fox show. So here you have Elon Musk, one of the world's wealthiest men with massive government subsidies, massive government mandates at his back, all the politics in his favor, all the regulations in his favor, all the know-how and smarts that he has, and he's being overtaken by China, just like that. And why is that? Because China has a monopoly on all the materials. Half a million pounds of materials 
go into making one Tesla battery. And those materials include all the rare earth mining that China's getting through slave labor with their Uyghurs. It includes all the Democrat Republic of Congo, and the underage kids and the, and the very low poor wages and horrendous environmental standards. And still, we can't compete with all the federal subsidies and mandates. Do you see what's going on here? Government can't wave, you can't say a magic wand, you could say a magic vault of trillions of dollars and focus it at a few industries of the green energy, so-called, and then have them win. They couldn't even last a freaking year to 18 months and their failures are obvious. And we have two more wind farms shutting down by BP and others off the coast of New York now. There's been, that joins at least a dozen other major offshore wind projects. You have the, all the governors, the mayors lining up in New Jersey. I think it was about 50 Republican mayors, no Democrats yet, opposing this offshore wind. So you have offshore wind reeling, despite all the subsidies. You have uh, the EV market just collapsing before our eyes where none of the automakers, this is what happens when that happens. So what are they gonna do? They're not gonna look at this when I say they, the, the government bureaucrats and the climate activists and the corporate media and the Bill Gateses and the United Nations, they're not gonna look at this and say, oh, well, I guess it's not working. They're gonna say, we failed because we didn't invest enough. This is proof that we need to double, triple, and quadruple down. We need more mandates. We need more bans on the competition. If our products are so great, that's why we have to ban and, and prohibit the competition. And they're going to increase that spending that much more because failure is proof they didn't spend enough taxpayer money. It's that simple. All right, here's the next clip is me talking about the activist judges, which once they can't get this through democracy, which they can't anymore, they got to legislate through the courts. And so how do you get judges to go along with like lawsuits with kids as young as eight or saying to Joe Biden's EPA, we're suing you because we want to ensure our climate future. You need to shut down industry and make us all poor and, and go to back to the dark ages or the planet's gonna, we're not going to be able to live here. So how do they train the judges? This is now, go ahead and play. Uh, this is uh, clip two, part two of me and Varney talking about the training of federal judges to fight climate change. All right, Mark, next one for you. The Environmental Law Institute, that's an organization yeah. funded by left-wing nonprofits. They are quietly training judges how to prepare for cases related to climate change. How do you train judges on climate? What's this all about? This is just yet another way. Remember, when Biden was elected president, they decided to make every cabinet agency a climate agency. They also bonded up with the Treasury Department, working with environment, social governance, so the banking industry wouldn't fund fossil fuel. Now what they're doing, and these are all ways to bypass democracy. Remember, the Green New Deal was introduced in Congress, but there was never a hearing, never a vote. There were no town halls. There were no switchboards lighting up. Why? Because they don't need no stinking democracy. They're instead now, this is where the courts come in. They want to now legislate via the benches and the federal benches. So you have lawsuits springing up all over the United States. The most recent one was in Montana where the kids won. And now you have a new one in California with kids as young as eight suing Biden's EPA in order to essentially ensure their climate future. So what they've decided is the activists, uh, climate activists are gonna train these judges on how they can rule in their favor. And these are usually typically Democrat appointed judges, activists themselves, and they're eating all this up so that they can do issue rulings that will withstand higher court, in many cases, probably up to the Supreme Court, scrutiny. And of course, the problem here is you can't have 
federal judges, you can't have executive agencies trying to change the temperature of the earth or reduce the frequency of hurricanes. We're taking another, you, I mentioned East Germany earlier, Stuart, we're taking a page back now to the old Aztec industry where you had Aztec priests say, you must do the following or the weather's gonna get you. And that's what we're seeing now. The judges have to rule a certain way or the weather's gonna get us. You have to buy an EV or a hurricane or flood, a tornado's gonna get us. Mm, that's a scare tactic. Mark Morano, Climate Depot. Thanks so much, uh, Mark. We'll see you again soon. Thanks a lot. Yeah, again, a very fun segment for me to do because this is a Fox Business Wall Street crowd that mostly hears about the numbers and they don't get into the sort of bigger picture and the ideology behind what's happening. And which leads me to my last clip for today before we go to a uh, with the break and then economist Dan Mitchell will be joining us. The World Economic Forum, Yaval Noah Harari, which is the top advisor to Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, has predicted rapid advances in technology to make humans redundant. Now, this is back, this is sort of the vision of the Great Reset. This is where they're really pushing this idea of useless eaters. And he has said in previous things that people uh, are gonna have to have video games and psychotropic drugs to keep us happy. This is just gives you a snapshot into what the global elites, this is clip three, the World Economic Forum senior advisor, Yuval Noah Harari. This is what they think of you. In the book, if I understand it correctly, you argue that actually the amazing breakthrough that uh, we are experiencing right now, not only will potentially make our life better, but uh, they will create, and I quote you, new classes and new class struggles, just as the Industrial Revolution did. Can you elaborate for us? Yes, in the Industrial Revolution, we saw the uh, creation of a new class of the urban proletariat, and much of the political and social history of the last 200 years involved what to do with this class and the new problems and opportunities. Now we see the creation of a new massive class of useless people. As computers become better and better in more and more fields, there is a distinct possibility that computers will outperform us in most tasks and will make humans redundant. And then the big political and economic question of the 21st century will be, what do we need humans for? Or at least, what do we need so many humans for? Do you have an answer in the book? Um, at present, the best guess we have is uh, keep them happy with drugs and computer games. And as they say, saying the quiet part out loud. Notice how many people, and this is a big part. Remember the recent study I highlighted on this show uh, in the journal PLOS of showing you that human breathing is contributing to warming? They look at us as we are the carbon you are the carbon they want to reduce. So that just gives you an idea of what's going on. It's World Economic Forum. That's all part of my, in my book, The Great Reset. I go into greater detail on that. All right, you're watching Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. When we come back, we're going to have economist Dan Mitchell come on, and we're going to be talking the fiscal matters, China, and other uh, regulatory issues. Stay tuned. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. Rick Munn on TNT Radio. There was a, a statement that I saw last week that I thought was quite interesting from one of these uh, web spokespeople, the World Economic Forum spokesperson. And one thing that she said that I thought was quite interesting was she said, you know, um, there has been a little bit of a tail off with people buying into the vaccine narrative. And she blamed that on people like us spreading so-called misinformation. She said that climate change was a little bit too much of an abstract concept for 
people to really grab and get their heads around. So that's not really taking off the way they want to either. And then she said something very interesting. She said, you know what? When the water crisis comes, people will understand that because it's simple and everybody needs water. And if you don't have water for a few days at a time, you'll know all about it. So maybe, you know, we're hypothesizing a little bit about what's, what it's going to take to grab people and bring them back on board again with a World Economic Forum type narrative. Could this be what it is? Locked and loaded with Rick Mon on today's News Talk TNT Radio. As a combat wounded veteran, I know how hard it is to come home and build a meaningful life. When I was in Iraq, our vehicle was hit. A rocket propelled grenade exploded right under my seat. Traumatic brain injury, a fractured pelvis, severe burns. They didn't think I was going to make it. I had to learn to walk again and live with the scars, both visible and invisible. DAV helps veterans like LaToya get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. With DAV on my side, I was able to pursue my dreams. If my story can touch a heart, it can change a life. My victory is overcoming my wounds so I can help other veterans. LaToya Lucas, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Our next steps to space. This time we go back to the moon to learn to live, to work, to invent, to create. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT with your host, Mark Morano. All right, joining us now is economist Dan Mitchell, formerly of the Cato Institute and of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, welcome to the program, Dan. I'm glad to be with you, Mark. All right. All right, I wanted to talk some economics here. The United States, as we enter 2024, we seem to have a lot of economic problems. First of all, just from a historical perspective, where, where, what era do we most feel like we're entering, where, where we're currently sitting? Are we back sort of in the inflationary 1970s, would you say, with high energy costs? Or are we in the sort of the 80s or early 80s with high deficits? Uh, or, you know, would you put us uh, you know, back in the, the 2000s? What era are we similar to right now? And what are our crucial problems facing the economy? Obviously, we have massive spending. We have massive debt. We have inflation. We have supply chain issues. We have trade imbalances. But are those even important? I've heard all the arguments, you know, where trade imbalance, trade deficits are fine. Um, where do we stand economically? Uh, in terms of our problems and our strengths? If I had to pick a decade, I would say we're back in the 1970s because we've certainly had the bouts of inflation. I think that's improving now. I think the Fed uh, sort of learned from its mistake of you know just juicing the money supply so much uh, during and after the pandemic. Uh, we also have you know, the problems of ever-growing government, more regulation, more red tape, yeah. more taxes, more spending. Uh, now, Obviously, it's not a perfect match to what we had in the 1970s, uh, but I, I actually think we, we face a lot of the problems that uh, that Ronald Reagan had to deal with when when he took office uh, in 1981. Well, yeah, I mean, you're right, because it would be the high interest rates, uh, the high inflation. Uh, and who knows? We may have a one-term Democrat president who gets voted out by someone. Who knows how that's going to happen? Uh, when you look at America, in terms of our debt, is it manageable? 
or is it almost hopeless at this point? I mean, how do we go forward five, 10, 15 years? You know, if you listen to some economists, I like guess Ron Paul, if you listen to someone like, it can scare you to death. You know, then you have all these people who become preppers because they look at all this stuff and they see a, a, a currency collapse, they see economic collapse. Where do you weigh in on that? How worried should we actually be about the US economy right now? We should be worried, but but I'm going to have a little bit different perspective. We should be worried in the long run. I don't think there's going to be a economic crisis in the next two years, five years, ten years. You know, of course, okay. I don't think economists are good forecasters, so don't, don't even <laughs> yeah. believe me on that. But but suffice to say, I don't see any reason why a crisis would happen in the short run. But in the long run, there are massive problems with the growing entitlement state. Uh, and and the other thing I would differ with some of the other commentators out there. I don't think our problem is debt. Debt is the symptom. The underlying problem is big government. The reason that we have high deficits today is because government is spending too much. The reason that deficits and debt will be higher in the future is because government is projected to grow and consume an ever larger share yeah. of our economy's output. That is our problem. Here's the analogy I use, Mark. If I go to the doctor because I have really severe headaches and the doctor you know, does the MRIs, the CAT scans, and he says, Dan, you have a brain tumor. Do I ask the doctor for Tylenol for my headache? I mean, maybe I yeah. do, but guess what? I'm much more worried about, well, doc, can you do an operation and get the brain tumor out of my head? Right. That is our problem. In this analogy, government spending is the brain tumor. Deficits and debt are the headache, the symptom of the brain tumor. So I'm a big believer that we desperately need to do something like Switzerland, have a spending cap. And in order to fulfill that spending cap, we're gonna need to reform the entitlements. Here's the bottom line. If we don't reform entitlements, we will become Western Europe. And one of the implications of that is not only high levels of debt like you find in Greece and Italy, but also massive middle-class tax increases. I mean, what's the big fiscal difference between the US and Western Europe, Mark? It's not that we that they tax the rich more than we do. We both tax the rich about the same. The difference is they finance their big welfare states with huge tax increases on middle class and lower income households. Huge value added taxes, very high energy taxes, uh, social insurance taxes that are much worse than what we have in the U.S. Uh, their income taxes have higher rates that kick in at lower levels. So the middle class and lower income people in Europe just get reamed by taxes to finance their big welfare states. And if we don't reform entitlements, that's exactly what's gonna happen in the United States because there simply aren't enough rich people to finance big government. Now, when you look at Europe, is it still true that the, the, their economic growth is relatively very stagnant compared to the US? How do we compare in terms of, yeah, particularly for middle-class and, uh, and working-class earners? How, how, does that, how does the US and Europe compare these days? The, the United States is much better off than Europe. Now. When I say Europe, as you know, there's many different countries. Right. Some of them are very well run with strong you know, economic performance, yeah. high levels of income, think like Switzerland. Uh, as a general rule, the, the farther north you are in Europe, the better run the country is than if you're, say, down in the Mediterranean region with uh, Spain and uh, Italy and Greece that tend to be uh, uh, more of an economic basket case uh, region. Uh, just like in the United States, you know, Florida and Texas grow faster than you know, New York, California, and Illinois. But if we're going to just do averages, yes, the United States, we're richer than Europe. We're growing faster than Europe. The burden of government is lower than it is in Europe. But the trend line is, is that we're going to become Europe. 
And, and this is baked into the cake because of the way our entitlement programs are designed and because we have aging of our population. Now, by the way, while we're heading in the direction of becoming Europe, most European countries are heading, I don't know, off a cliff to becoming Venezuela. I don't even know how to describe <laughs> it. You know, right. They have the same problem with aging populations and their welfare states are so big. And so, so while we're heading toward, you know, I guess the iceberg, uh, I guess you'd say that a lot of European countries are heading toward completely uncharted territory. You know, what, what, back in the 1400s, everyone thought the world was flat. You'd sail off the end of the earth. That's going to happen to Greece and Italy if they don't begin to reform their entitlements and get government under control. Government spending, I think, is the biggest economic problem in the developed world. And by the way, some people say, no, no, it's inflation, but they're connected because when you have a bad government, what do politicians do? They can't tax anymore. They can't borrow anymore. They finance big government with the printing press, uh, sort of like what Argentina is infamous for doing. Now, ironically, I don't want to sort of get us off track, but Argentina just elected a hardcore libertarian as their president. I so it'll be that, a very yeah. interesting experiment to see whether he can actually save that country because it's one of the worst governed countries in the world. And, and I think his heart's in the right place, uh, but the legislature is still controlled by the old Peronist big government uh, crony crowd. So we'll see what happens. Well, let me give you a it could be a very distorted, but it's my own personal sort of cobble American history when it comes to government spending and government uh, you know, entitlement, state welfare. I look go back to Dwight David Eisenhower. I look at his eight years as presidency as a missed opportunity because when he was elected, he literally, in, in, if you go back at the history books, he actually paid for all the welfare. He inst instituted all these entitlements. He grew the government domestically. It didn't really matter in terms of prosperity, freedom, because the government was so massively growing. We were the yeah you know, we were the leader of the world at that point and had uh, massive economic growth. And then in the '60s, you of course have uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, and then Richard Nixon gets elected. He funds all of those programs even more, particularly the Great Society. So then you have Jimmy Carter, you have all the stagflation and the stagnation. And then Reagan comes in for the first term anyway, seems to try to reverse it. And then by the uh, 90s, we're losing again. Then the Republicans come in, they rein in. And the only bright spot I can find is Bill Clinton's second term when you had gridlock in Washington, everyone worried about a sex scandal. And you had Republican Congress, Bill Clinton as president willing to play ball. You had budget surpluses, you had balanced budgets, and you had cheap energy, low inflation, economic growth. And then, of course, 9-11 hit, spending went crazy, wars began. Then 2008, you have the whole... Um, uh, uh, collapse of markets. And then, of course, COVID was a whole nother layer of spending. So it just seems like the deck is stacked against us. So everything I just mentioned, you have the Republican Congress in 94 made a dent. Reagan's first term made a dent. Outside of those two things, and maybe Jack John Kennedy, early 60s, it just seems like we're at a less than 10% winning battle and that this is inevitable. How do we actually reverse 60, 70, 80 years of history that's stacked against us about the growth of government? Sorry, there's a well, lot of history, I, a lot of my own history, version of history for that question, but go ahead. <laughs> I largely agree with your historical uh, depiction. Uh, yeah, I might uh, tinker here and there, but what you're sure. basically describing is the ratchet effect. Government yes. grows, then maybe you sort of stop it from growing, but then it grows again. And anytime yes. you sort of have progress, you're only maybe undoing 50% of the damage that occurred. So damage, a little bit of undoing, more damage, 
a little yes. bit of undoing. So you keep moving in the wrong direction with government, uh, just having a bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger footprint in the economy. And that's why I'm so pessimistic about the future. All that built-in government spending, most of which will probably be financed by debt. Eventually, they'll start financing it by money printing. It, it's hard to be optimistic when you're looking uh, at that. And there's a whole theory in economics, by the way, called public choice. That's what James Buchanan won the Nobel Prize for. It simply explains that politicians are looking out for their own interest, not the country's interest. And what's in the interest of politicians? Buying votes with other people's money. And so, yes, yeah. it is hard to be cheerful when you're looking at just the most corrupt system you could possibly have uh, with politicians spending so much money uh, and not caring about the future. Well, I, as I, I had an economist, uh, Darren Nelson, on earlier this week, and I asked him about David Stockman, who wrote the book, who was Ronald Reagan's Office of Management and Budget. He wrote the book after his term, and he just said, you know, he, not that he necessarily gave up, but he just said he tried to do all the cutting, even the Republicans weren't favoring it in Congress at the time. And he just said he thinks Americans want big government and they don't, and they're willing, they're not necessarily willing to pay the taxes, but no one's willing to cut the spending. Are we at a point where, we, where conservatives, libertarians, free market, do we just have to give up and say it's inevitable we're going to be like Europe because the appetite for actually shrinking government just isn't there? You've put your finger on the problem, which is once. I don't know who said it, but there's a famous saying that you know once people learn they can vote themselves other people's yeah. money, that will herald the end of the republic. I uh, think it was Ben Franklin it's attributed to, but I don't know if he actually said it. Uh, you know, who, whoever said it, it's right. Yeah. Uh, when people decide that it's perfectly okay to live their lives off the labor of others and just mooch off the government, uh, it's very hard to be optimistic about the future of a society in that case. Now, I'm not totally pessimistic. I mean, I would just give up. I would stop working in public policy if I thought it was hopeless. I right. look at a country like Switzerland, which implemented a spending cap. And ever since then, they've done a great job of controlling the growth of government spending. I look at Colorado, which is largely a blue state now. They have TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which is also a spending cap. And, and every couple of years, the big spending lobbies in Colorado try to repeal TABOR. But the voters, even though they vote for Democrats for the Senate and governor and stuff like that, they keep saying, no, we're going to keep Tabor. So so it is possible, I think, if we if we somehow had another Reagan out there who could explain that our problems are because of government. I mean, what was his famous line from his inauguration? Government is the problem, not the solution. And unfortunately, yeah. as, as you already intimated, a lot of Republicans, you know, they're perfectly happy to be big spenders, too. You know, they campaign. They first come to Washington saying, oh, Washington's a cesspool. Well, guess what? After five years, they think it's a hot tub. Uh, so so a little bit of uh, churning and turmoil and some Republican primary fights. Uh, we need to get back that Tea Party spirit that existed about 10, 12 yeah. years ago, where Republicans actually, well, maybe they were just pretending, but they actually echoed Reagan's sentiments that we need to rein in big government, that government is what's going to make us poorer. And if we want a richer, freer, more prosperous society, uh, we need some spending restraint uh, and fiscal responsibility. Now, if you look at someone like Donald Trump, he was not any kind of fiscally restrained president. I mean, he spent 
a lot of money, even pre-COVID, I believe. I mean, he never even, you know, I think his first budget, he proposed like radical reductions or at least significant reductions in EPA, which were dead on arrival uh, in Washington. But how does a republic, I mean, how do you adopt that Switzerland model in the U.S.? Do you think it's possible or to make a Colorado-wide thing? I mean, we had props, was it Prop 13 in California? Is that long gone in terms of the effects? That was 19, what, late 1970s. How do how do you limit? Uh, I remember Jack Kemp always having the idea of you know somehow you got to put a lid on spending and then you have economic growth and a spending there. Eventually the problem sort of solves it. But realistically, given our yin yang of politics and government and even gridlock, uh, how do you actually put a reform on spend a lid on spending on Washington that would stick from administration and to administration and Congress to Congress? Well, there's a lot to chew on there and what you're asking. Uh, I'll try to take them in order. And if I forget something, sure. remind me. Right. First, you're right. Donald Trump was not fiscally responsible. Even before COVID, he was increasing domestic spending at a faster rate than Barack Obama. And, yeah. and he had Republicans that had control of Congress for the first two years. So if Trump wanted to be good, he could have been good. But, but you know, he's a populist. Populists don't think about long-run responsibility they think about yeah. just sort of pleasing the masses in the short run. Uh, so I was not a fan of Trump's spending policy. Now, his tax cut was good. I mean, he did two very important things. We lowered the corporate tax rate significantly, and we scaled back the uh, the uh, itemized deduction for state and local taxes, which was used to subsidize irresponsible fiscal policy in high-tax states like New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Connecticut, whatever. Uh, so there were some things that I liked out of Trump, but on government spending... He was not good news. And of course, once COVID came in, he used that as an excuse to spend money faster than a, yeah. than a Greek politician. Uh, so, so yeah, that if Trump winds up in the White House again, uh, I won't be optimistic. Of course, if Biden winds up in the White House again, I won't be optimistic, which probably explains why we started this whole discussion saying <laughs> I'm not optimistic in the long run. Well, what's interesting is I've always maintained the best chance you have at fiscal restraint is like Bill Clinton's second term. You need a divided government with gridlock to some extent. Actually, let, let's start over. How did we get, that was the only time in my lifetime that I recall, how did we get balanced budgets in the late 90s? What what was the reason? I know we had welfare reform, we had the gridlock, Republican president, Congress, and a Democrat president, but how much credit does Bill Clinton deserve? How much credit does the Newt Gingrich Congress deserve? How did that happen and how can we replicate it? Is that because of the peace dividend or the thought peace dividend? This was pre 9-11, of course, but after the Soviet Union collapsed. Was it from defense savings that we did all those balanced budgets or was there other reasons? Let's actually go back to the 1980s to answer that question, because I think okay, long sure. run trends, long run trend lines are really the key thing when you're looking at budgets. Uh, you talked about David Stockman and how he was yes. just depressed and disgusted about not making progress, but he actually did make progress. If you look at Ronald Reagan's uh, fiscal performance, government spending as a share of the GDP was one percentage point lower when he left office than when he took office. But that doesn't even capture what he did. Because obviously there are three big pieces of the budget, defense, net interest, and domestic spending. Well, let's set aside net interest because you can't control that. Defense spending, Reagan obviously spent more money on national defense. Uh, and so that amount of the budget went up. On domestic spending, the stuff that he came into office saying, we're going to rein in the welfare state of Washington, Reagan actually reduced domestic spending by two and a half percentage points of GDP. 
and and by the way, when he left office, according to the Congressional Budget Office, government spending was going to continue on a downward trajectory compared to GDP. Deficits were going to fall as a share of GDP and in nominal terms as well. Now, obviously, what happened? Well, then Bush came in. He increased spending. This is George H.W. Bush, the, the yes. first president Bush. And, and he was basically a Democrat. Uh, he increased taxes. He increased yeah. spending. So so Reagan made a lot of progress that we don't appreciate. Bush unwound some of that progress. Then Bill Clinton comes into office. But almost before he can even do anything, Republican state Congress in a landslide in 1994. The yeah. only really bad thing he did was his tax increases first year. But Hillary Kerr was rejected. Uh, yes. And that basically that was his entire domestic agenda. So he wasn't trying to increase spending dramatically in his first two years. He was trying to get Hillary care, which, of course, would have increased spending, but he didn't get it through. Then Republican state Congress, the Gingrich Revolution, as people called it. And what happened for four years? Total government spending grew by an average of just two point nine percent a year. Now, I, I'm a hardcore small government conservative, libertarian, whatever you call it. I want government to actually shrink every year. But you know what? If your nominal GDP is growing five, six, seven percent a year, yeah, and your government spending is only growing two point nine percent a year, what's gonna happen? You are gonna shrink government as a share of the private economy, GDP. Right. And because revenues tend to grow as fast as the private economy, if your revenues are growing five, six, seven percent a year and government spending is only growing two point nine percent a year, what's gonna happen? You're going to wind up with a budget surplus within a matter of a few years. That's why we got the surplus at the end of the 1990s. Republicans combined with with Bill Clinton put the brakes on government spending. Government spending grew at a very slow rate. We had lots of other good economic reforms like welfare reform, deregulation uh, that helped our economy grow fast. And there was a peace dividend. Ronald Reagan's defense buildup ultimately paid off big time with the right. collapse of the Soviet empire. And and so, yes, Bill Clinton, domestic spending, it didn't shrink as much as it did during the Reagan years, but it did shrink. But but the, the lion's share of the deficit reduction was from lower spending on national defense. Uh, now, was that completely the right thing to do? Well, we didn't really know that China was going to become a potential geopolitical enemy at the time. Uh, so it probably was the right thing to do. But the, But the bottom line is, the way, if you want to balance the budget, and by the way, my goal is smaller government, not balancing the budget. I think if you get smaller government, you will balance the budget. But first and foremost, in our minds should be, how do we limit and reduce the burden of government spending? Uh, and, and that's what we did in the 1990s. We started in the 1980s, so we were on a good trend line. There was that hiccup of George H.W. Bush being a tax and spend guy. But then we got back on the right path. Uh, in uh, in the 1990s with with Gingrich and the rest of the Republicans controlling Congress, and we got great results. Then, of and course, then, as you already said, uh, we yeah. had a 9-11 and George W. Bush, just like his father was a big spender. It wasn't just you know building up defense after 9-11. Uh, he had corrupt farm bills, pork-filled transportation bills. Uh, he had he expanded yeah. Medicare with a new entitlement program. Uh, he, he was just, he, you know, he was like Trump. He was a big spender, and he was like his father, a big spender. I've always said uh, we should try to find a way to banish the Bush family from ever. You know, I wish we could expunge them from the presidency and make sure they never run again. But uh, <laughs> that's my personal well, opinion. I, I, I think that's probably the case now. I think Republicans got <laughs> tired of uh, of uh, Bushes being in the White House because yeah. we wound up 
seeing the country being governed as if a, a Democrat was in there. All right, we have to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about China and the threat of China, because some people see it as a threat, some don't. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. We're talking with economist Dan Mitchell. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. When the world's endangered animals need help most, when their lives are at greatest risk, when they would otherwise be lost, the International Fund for Animal Welfare is there, taking action to rescue the animals we love, to protect them and their threatened natural habitats. But the danger to animals the world over is growing, and the need for your help has never been more urgent. On land, you'll help stop poachers from threatening and killing elephants and big cats for the illegal wildlife trade. In the oceans, you'll help rescue dolphins, whales, and seals from deadly hazards. And you'll help rescue, rehabilitate, and release vulnerable animals when disasters strike. Here at home and around the world, we can't do this work without you. See how you can help animals and people thrive together at joinifall.org. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed. We're talking with economist Dan Mitchell. All right, I'm going to talk in our final minute here, in the final segment about China. A lot of, I guess you could say, populists, uh, protection, protectionists, believe that our industrial base was gutted by the rise of China, by essentially gutting our domestic base and turning over a lot of the product production to China. If you go back to the Ross Perot, uh, Al Gore debates, whether it be NAFTA, then later the World Trade Organization, people against globalism, where did China fall into that? Why is the American industrial base uh, so harmed, all these Rust Belt states that basically switched from Democrat, voted for Trump? Was it because of the rise of China or was it because of U.S. policy? And how do we ever get our base back? Is it something we want to get back or is, is the economy changing so much that those are just sort of an anachronism, a history we can't go back? Again, economists a lot of questions. Do, Sorry about that. <laughs> economists do talk about something called the China shock, which was China entering the world uh, trading system. Uh, and there's no question you, you bring in a country of more than a billion people with relatively high levels of labor productivity combined with low wages, uh, they were able to be a more competitive location for some manufacturing output. But but I'm not a, a Cassandra about uh, our manufacturing sector. Uh, as a share of GDP, uh, we produce just as much as we produced 20 years ago, uh, 30 years ago. The problem uh, from a jobs perspective is that productivity has increased so much, automation has increased so much, that you know, we can produce, whether it's cars or steel or washing machines, we can produce those things now with a lot less labor. Uh, now, historically, we've always seen changes in the composition of our economy. It used to be 90% of people worked on farms, and then we had a lot of people working in, in manufacturing, and now, now most people are working in services. And yet, all through that time, through those you know 200 years of economic history for the United States, plus, uh, our incomes keep going up. So we're becoming more productive, uh, where our labor force gets reallocated in ways that meet the new needs and wants of consumers. So it, it, if we leave the private sector alone, I'm reasonably optimistic that we'll always have more progress. Uh, now, unfortunately, the government doesn't leave the private sector alone. We talked about the bad fiscal policy in the previous segment, but let me just say a little something about China, jobs, trade. I'm a big believer in free trade. 
However, I'm not a believer in other countries cheating. And the World Trade Organization was supposed to stop countries from cheating. China does a lot of subsidizing of their industries in ways that I think is wrong and very contrary to the free market. So the challenge is, if we know China is, is using their capital markets and subsidies and things like that to give their companies an unfair advantage, how do we solve that? Do we try to ban trade with China? Uh, it, it's a very difficult issue. But here's one thing I'll say. Do not be protectionist to the other countries in the world that play fair. We should be competing fairly and openly and honestly with Europe, with Japan, with Latin America, with Africa. If, but if a country's notoriously cheating and potentially if they're a geopolitical enemy, and I'm not someone who's an expert on that, but some people say, well, we could wind up in a war with China uh, over Taiwan in five years or something like that. Obviously, when you're talking about those types of specific things, a country cheating or a country being an enemy, maybe you relax your free trade principles, but don't give up on the principle of free trade. It's good to have free trade between Nevada and Nebraska and between Illinois and South Carolina. It's just the same way it's good to have free trade between the U.S. and Germany and Brazil and South Africa. But maybe China is an exception. Well, like when it comes to something like I opened the show talking about electric vehicles, China is now one of the Chinese EV makers is now passing Tesla. Chinese EV production, I think, is passing U.S., North Korea. EU is looking at tariffs against the Chinese auto invasion of electric cars. If the world were to, as they're, as they're trying to do, mandate us go electric, it seems as though China is going to be the uh, global superpower monopolistic automaker because they have a monopoly on all these products. We're not allowed necessarily to do the mining for the rare earths, for the EV batteries in the United States due to environmental concerns. But we're, well, we'll gladly buy the same product from China. So where does that leave? I mean, China is really on a trajectory to be, I, I, is this a fair statement, to be the world's sole economic superpower, say, in the next 50 years, if current trends continue? Won't they be the world's number one economic superpower? And they may already be today, but I'm just talking about like overwhelming dominant. I mean, it just seems as though, uh, or am I being too uh, overly optimistic given all the structural problems China has? I think China in the long run faces serious problems. Uh, let, let, let's do it just like you did a history of the U.S. since World sure. War II. Let, let me do a history of China since 1979. You got about a, less than a minute, about a minute left. So okay. go ahead. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> China did some economic liberalization to undo the horrible damage of mm -hmm. Mao's hardcore communism. So under uh, 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 this is 80s and 90s, basically, they opened up to the world a little bit. They still had a, too much government, but they opened up. Now under President Xi, they're, they're backsliding toward more government. So, and, and by the way, right now, on a per capita GDP basis, the U.S. is four to six times richer than China. So why on earth would we, we'd be, would we be scared of a country that is an economic pipsqueak compared to the United States measured at, in terms of per capita GDP? And all these subsidies China is giving to their electric car makers, that's impoverishing China. Yes, it's distorting world trade, and yes, maybe we should deal with it. But remember, China's interventions are hurting the Chinese economy in the long run. I'm not worried about China at all. Wow, very good. All right, well, thank you very much. Economist Dan Mitchell, thanks for joining us. This has been Unleashed with Mark Morano. Thanks for watching and listening.